Good morning. It's been really neat the last this sermon series on Malachi. If you if you did come to the art night, you saw pieces like that played and art like the one Gary Wells made here today. I hope that it's been neat to it was neat to have them there on the art night. It's been neat to use a lot of those pieces or songs or um, sculptures through the sermon series on Malachi. I hope that as we get ready to get into Philippians in a few weeks, that perhaps if you are a writer and you want to write a poem or a story or choreograph a dance or write a song or paint or draw, that you will use that creative gift for the glory of God. Really quick, um, I I made a joke last week about I never do announcements, and this is why, because I forget the announcement I'm supposed to do when I get up here. Um, Communion. So we're going to take communion this morning, and that is really exciting. And one of the, yeah, one of the things that came up recently, I had the opportunity to do communion at the women's retreat, and I had several people come up to me and say, I haven't taken communion in years, you know, or four years or five years because of the rotation that they've served. If you're part of our ministry here at Grace, you know that a lot of our ministries function on a rotation either every week, either maybe you volunteer in the nursery or on the safety team or in the children's ministry either the first week or the second week or the third week. And since we always do communion on the first week, there is a substantive population of good people in the life of our church that have not taken communion in years. And when that came to my attention, I said, well, that's kind of a problem that we need to remedy because Lord Jesus, as we're going to celebrate this morning, he says, do this in remembrance of me. And so therefore it's not as leadership, we need to make it possible for you to engage in the grace of taking communion. So the staff tinkered around with different 15 different ideas on how we can remedy that. And what we're going to do starting next month in May is we are actually going to take communion twice a month on the first and on the third Sundays. And so on the first Sunday, we will always take communion in the same way that you always have, you know, with where we pass around the bread and the cup. But then on the third Sunday, in order to try to eliminate adding more work to our wonderful team of deacons, on the third Sunday, we are going to do it the way we did Uh, on Good Friday, where we're going to do it in several stations spread out around the church by intention, where there is just a common chalice, and the bread is taken, and it is dipped in the cup uh, in, in the way form that the ancient church did it in. So that way, Lord willing, I don't think we have too many people that serve on the first and the third, but we can, and it's never a bad thing to take communion more. (laughs) And to celebrate more frequently what Jesus has done for us. Um, second announcement. Um, this is like the announcement, the liturgical morning, of, or the announcement of liturgical inventions. Um, so one of the things you've probably noticed that we started doing once we hit the book of Malachi is we've had someone come up and often read the word of God. And that has been rather intentional because... We just want to celebrate this powerful truth that God has spoken and that we have his word, and that we, we are with hope because we have the word of God. And so you've seen, if you've been with us just about every week, someone else other than myself has come up and has read the word of the Lord. And, it's, and every week after they've finished reading the scripture, they've said, this is the word of the Lord. And it was really great. One of our fantastic elders sent an email then after about midway through, and he said, hey, this is great. I love that someone else is getting up and they're saying this is the word of the Lord. Let's take it one step further. And he said, let's actually respond 
in a way, depending on your church background, you may have done where whoever is reading the text says, this is the word of the Lord. And then as the congregation, we say, thanks be to God. And I laughed when, when, when the, I, will, I won't say his name because he gets mad when I say his name, when he sent out this email because I said, You're three, you, you, you read my mind. That's where we're going because we want to celebrate this. Part of the idea of liturgy, whatever it is, is celebrating the powerful doctrines and truths of Scripture. And so that's what we're going to start doing. I am, this is the last time, hopefully in a, in a short while, you'll see me up here reading the word. But we want the scripture reading to be an interactive experience where whoever is the reading will read the word. They will say, this is the word of the God, Lord. And then we as the congregation can respound, respond by saying, thanks be to God. Because are we not thankful that God has not left us alone wondering over who he is? but that instead he has revealed himself through his word that we can know him, know his will, and worship him as he has revealed himself. I hope I do not have to do another announcement for a very long time. All right, here we go. So this morning we are in the book of Malachi. This is our last sermon on the book of Malachi. We are in chapter 3. If, if you're wondering why we're ending in chapter 3, it's because we did chapter 4 a few weeks ago with part of chapter 2. No, I am not avoiding a controversial text. I went through the controversial text already and I'm happy about it. So here we are in Malachi chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who fear the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. This is the word of the Lord. Wow, you guys are like old hands at this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that indeed you have spoken. We praise you that you have revealed yourself through history, through creation, through your word, through the person of your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father God, I pray that you would work in our hearts, that we would respond to your revelation. I pray, God, that we would drop down the idols that we would raise up in place of you. I pray that we would drop down the image of you that we perhaps have built up in our minds and instead hearken and have faith in who you really are. I pray, Lord God, that we would come before you in humility and meekness, that our words would be few that we would stand in awe of your name. 
Father God, we pray that you would do a great work in us, that we would see the splendor of your majesty, that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness, that we would yearn for you as water in a dry and weary land. Father God, be our hope, be our strength, be our song, be our strong tower. May we run to you and be safe. Father God, be our everything, that though the, the earth may fall and, and the heavens give way, we would rest confidently because our hope is in you. Lord, may our hope not be in men. May our hope not be in our strength. May it may not be in our bank account or our education or our wit or our wisdom. May our hope be in you. May our rest be in Christ and in his blood and not in our works. Do a work in us, God. Ordain praise for yourself in our hearts. We ask this all in the incredible and incomparable name of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Is justice blind? You know, in the ancient world, there were a lot of sculptures of justice, as the one you're about to see here on the screen. You'd, the Greeks, the Romans, they loved creating these sculptures of justice. And oftentimes, like this image, there were a lot of similarity. Justice often had, you know, two scales, perhaps one in each hand. In some sculptures, it was a scale, and, you know, you had each side of the scale in one hand, and there was perhaps a, a sword in the other. But, but justice always had a blindfold on in the vast majority of sculptures in the ancient world. The statement being made was that justice was fair because she was blind. Justice was done because it was not influenced by either party and did not play favorites. If true justice was to be achieved, the thought was that there needed to be a great degree of impartiality. Things have shifted a little bit in our modern context. Researchers have recently argued that justice is not blind when justices are not hungry. Perhaps you read an article, 2010 Time Magazine had a lead article about justice because three researchers got together from the United States and Israel and they decided to test the legal adage that justice equals, quote, what the judge ate for breakfast. Research team tracked the rulings of eight judges in over 1,100 parole board hearings in a period of over 10 months. The results overwhelmingly led them to a conclusion that the chances of a prisoner being granted parole depended on the time of day the judge heard the case. To put it bluntly, the judges, who had an average of 22 years of experience, their ability to make decisions was about as reliable as a kindergartner who needs a snack break. Prisoners' odds for getting their parole granted started out high in the morning directly after breakfast. About 65% of those prisoners were granted parole. Then for the next few hours, the chances of getting parole began to plummet. This was followed by a cycle of peaks and valleys that repeated itself throughout the day. Prisoners of chances of parole leapt back up to 65% after two clear and distinct times. Directly after the judge's mid-morning stack and directly after lunch. 
One blogger concluded, quote, the law being a human concoction is subject to the same foibles, biases, and imperfections that affect everything humans do. Biases like a bad mood or even breakfast. So you see, what's interesting about that is the thought, if you've been with us through Malachi, you've seen that the people of Israel, by and large, have a very negative view of God's justice. They think that God's justice is not blind. They think probably, in fact, that God is so hungry, he's just given a big pass to everyone and everything. They have zero trust in God's justice. They have little trust in God's faithfulness. In many ways, as I've said before, the book of Malachi has felt like a courtroom drama. The people of Israel continue to accuse God. They bring these accusations against him about who he is or who they think he is and what they think he has done or not done. And often we find the Lord, the Lord, the living God in the place where he is vindicating himself, where he is playing the role of the defense and in so doing exposing the hearts of the people of Israel. God is calling them repeatedly to repentance. Watching a few weeks ago, Denzel Washington, last May, he gave a commencement speech at a Christian college down south. And, and he talked openly in this commencement speech about his faith, interestingly enough. And he said, there's been a lot of times in my life I've walked away from God. But praise God, he's never walked away from me. Some of you might be able to resonate with that. What's interesting about the nation of Israel is that they have inverted that statement, haven't they? They feel like God has walked away from them, but that they have never walked away from God. They've accused him of not loving them. They've complained about the demands required in worship. And once again this week, we see them looking at God and saying, you are not just. There is no justice in you. Things have reached this kind of crescendo in the text. It's seven rounds of, you know, but you say accusations. And now in our text, we see God giving a verdict and separating servants from cynics. For, for 10 weeks now, we've looked at this barren tree of the nation of Israel. That it is barren in their faith, accusing God. And now we see in this last week how part of the tree remains barren, but part of it begins to produce fruit. Part of it begins to blossom. Part of it begins to give a fragrant aroma of faith before the living God. Three things we're going to see. One, we see the accusation. Secondly, we see the response of the repentant. And finally, we see the response of the living God. The accusation, verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge? Or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. 
I think it's fair to say the people of Israel are not pulling any punches. They're telling God exactly how they feel and what they think about him. They're not holding back. I mean, I mean, imagine the pain of that. Your words are hard against me. This is God talking. And that word hard could be translated perverse or cynical. Imagine God saying, your words are cynical. They are perverse. There is this sting in the very concept of that which God has created speaking so cynically about his character and his actions. They are not apathetic. They are quite angry, quite perverse in their thoughts about God. And yet, as bad as they are, if I am honest, that is exactly where I was before grace found me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. There's really two specific accusations we see them making about God here. They're saying that it is worthless to serve him and that it pays to sin. Let's look at them in order. It is worthless to serve God. It is a waste of time. You can imagine them walking around and talking to each other and saying, it is such a waste to serve this God. Why bother? How is it benefiting us? We're still poor. We're not ruling over our enemies anymore. Our nation is not experiencing the prosperity, the prestige, the power that we enjoyed under King David and King Solomon. He gives us all these demands. Do this, do this, don't do that. And it's not working. It is not paying off. So why bother trying? They think that God is someone who cannot be pleased, whose favor cannot be curried, who will not bless in response to their supposed obedience. In a very real sense, they're calling the living God a liar because he promised, as we saw in the book of Deuteronomy, to bless obedience under the Mosaic Covenant and to punish disobedience under the Mosaic Covenant. And here they are thinking that they are obedient, not enjoying what they perceive to be blessing, and looking at him and said, you dropped the ball. You lied. That's not who you are. They are accusing God of not keeping his covenant promise. Second thing we hear them do, saying is that it pays to sin. Evildoers put God to the test and they prosper. They, don't, they don't, clearly don't think justice is blind. They think justice is letting everyone go free. You can imagine them sitting there in the playground and saying, look at that kid over there. Look at that bully. Look at the way he knocked that kid's books down. Look at the way those mean names she called that other person. Look at how they harassed that other person. They got away with it. The teacher didn't notice. No one did anything. Everyone laughed and praised them when they, when they beat down that other person. Look, sin worked out for them. They're the popular kid now. It pays to sin. They put, e evildoers, they put God to the test and they escape. 
You imagine, can imagine them driving down a, a street right on the beach in Holland with, with the beautiful big houses there right on the water and saying, look, it pays to sin. That person right there in that house, he cheats on his taxes. That one right over there, he cheats on his wife. Hey, that woman who lives in that house right there, she has lied so much in her relationships, she doesn't even know what is true anymore. It pays to sin. Look at how well they are doing. People's accusations against God began in chapter 1, and they have grown and grown and grown. They are no longer looking at him as he has revealed himself to be through his person and his work. They are looking at him through their own twisted set of bifocals. Reminds me of the time Luther is debating Erasmus, and he said, your thoughts of God are too human. They're too human. We have the capacity to fall into this place where our thinking about God has become a polluted swamp. It's a mess. It's filthy. There is nothing clean in it. And we may not have fallen to the place the Israelites did here, where we are actively accusing and our hearts are so hard that we are standing in judgment of God. We may not have fallen into that place yet, praise his name. But there are traps we can fall into that lead us down that dark stairwell. And I think, it's, I think it's worth spending a few minutes and stepping back and saying, what are the traps that we can see right here in the text that led the Israelites to such a hard-hearted, perverse, cynical view of the living God? Because we want to avoid falling into the trap so we don't fall beyond it, right? Let's look at them three that we see in the text. One, we see the self-perception trap. The Israelites believe that God is not just, that he has lied, that he is not blessing them in response to their obedience. Can you see a problem with their accusation? Can you see a problem right on the surface there? They've fallen into the trap of thinking that they are a lot more faithful and godly than they really are. Their self Perception is way off. We've seen examples of it throughout the book. Each time God, they raise this accusation, God counters with a judgment about their faith, and they're incredulous. How have we spoken a hard thing against you? How have we despised your name? How have we treated you with contempt? The Israelites seem to have have this idea that they are honoring God and being faithful, but from God's perspective, that couldn't be the farthest thing from the truth. They are assaulting God's character because they are giving themselves far too much credit. Same thing we do when we feel like we can earn our way to heaven. When we think that we don't need grace because we are basically a good person. It's the trap that the Pharisees fell into when Jesus called them hypocrites, saying that they should remove, you know, the, the log from their own eye before they, po you know, pointed out the splinter in their neighbor's eye. 
In our text this morning, they say it is a waste of time to walk around in mourning. But you find yourself wondering, what was their heart attitude when they walked around in mourning or when, when they likely fasted is probably what it's talking about. What was their heart attitude? Were they going through the motions or was, was their heart gripped? They clearly think it was, you know, the, the latter, that they were giving this great example of faith because they're giving themselves all this credit. But you have to find yourself wondering. Isaiah 58 verse 3 reveals a very similar situation when the people again are in this self-perception trap and accusing God because of it. He writes, why have we fasted and you see it not? You hear their complaint. You don't see it, God. Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? And then you hear God's response. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and you oppress your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like this will not make your voice to be heard on high. Same situation as Malachi, isn't it? These people are angry at God saying, you're not being faithful. We're being faithful, you're not. And they are overlooking the fact that their worship is not worship at all. One of the reasons I think that God makes Christian a community a requirement rather than an option is because it is only in Christian community that we can find freedom from the self-perception trap. It is only in the Christian community and genuine accountability that help us because it is so dangerously easy for us to give ourselves more credit than we deserve, to think that we are more holy and self-righteous than we really are. I think part of the reasons that the scriptures call us to confess our sins to, quote, one another is because that forces us to take a really long, hard look in the mirror and to remember that we are sinners saved only by grace. We did not find ourselves. It was grace that found us. It was grace that set us free. We were blind, but now we see. We avoid the self-perception trap by crying out with the psalmist, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The problem that the people of Israel had is that they had this idea of who they were before the Lord. And then when God said, no, this is who you really are, they continued to cling to their own idea rather than submitting and accepting his own assessment. That's how we get out of the self-perception trap. We look at God for who he reveals himself to be, and we look at ourselves at, by who he says we are and not who our own minds, hearts, or our culture would claim us to be. The second trap they fell in was the perspectival trap, which sounds really fancy. Call it the perspective trap. The Israelites are looking around and saying, look at all these people who are sinning and living the good life. It doesn't pay to be faithful. It pays to sin. It seems like an incredible generalization, doesn't it? 
I mean, here they are looking out and saying, the wicked prosper, the righteous don't. It's an incredible generalization. And if we're honest, we might admit that most of us fall into the slippery slope of all or nothing thinking far too easily and frequently. We skip from a specific example into a much more emotionally debilitating, grand, sweeping statement. I mean, sit back and think about it. How often do you use the words always, never, everyone, no one, never? It's one of the first things you learn in a good counseling class. Don't use those words. Because they chain you, and they're probably not true. And they often, you use those powerful words, and you begin to define reality as you perceive it, rather than as it really is. Do, you really think, do they really think that their vision is good enough to make such a grand sweeping statement about all of reality? The wicked always prosper. Good grief, we can't see all the people in Hudsonville. Forget about all the people in the state or the nation, all the world. We can't know the hearts of everyone in this church. You don't know the hearts of everyone in the row that you're sitting in right now, even if there's only three of you. And yet we so often fall into the, the perspectival trap. Further, how easy it is us to fall into this perspectival trap and miss out on the heart of God. Could the temporary delay of God's justice be the means through which we were saved by grace? Could it be the opportunity for God to save someone else? We get so mad when we don't see justice fulfilled instantly. We want to see the hammer drop. We want to see it fall. We want to see it be done. And yet I don't think we would want that same measure applied to us. Because if it was, Genesis 4 probably would not have happened. And if it was, we never may have been saved in the first place. We get so mad when we don't see justice fulfilled immediately, and yet grace may be on the other side of that temporary delay. Joel chapter 2 writes, quote, Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Justice will be done. God is a God of justice, and his justice will always be filled, but he is also a God of mercy and grace. And so the temporary delay of justice is not a sign of God's unfaithfulness. It is an opportunity for God to extend his grace to sinners in need of a savior. And when we look down and we see justice, for lack of a better phrase, seemingly on hold, let us remember that but for the grace of God, that is where we would be. And that is what we would be under. And, and let us rekindle again the same compassion that we want to see extended to ourselves at the cross that we are going to celebrate this morning at this table. 
And beg for God to give us that compassion and mercy for others. Finally, they have fallen into the worship trap. They are not worshiping God for who he is, but for what they want him to give them. They're like the person who wants salvation but not repentance. Forgiveness of sins but not a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the Holy Son of God. God has become a vending machine that they can go to and get what they want. And they are happy to worship God as long as they get however much money they want, whatever kind of lifestyle they want, however many or few kids as they want. But the minute God doesn't start giving them exactly what they want, the moaning begins. The complaining starts. In reality, they have turned God into an idol, and they're treating him the same way the Israelites did in, what is it? Is it Exodus 32 with the golden calf, when Aaron says, behold, here's the God who brought you out of Egypt. They're not worshiping God for who he is. They're worshiping him for what they want him to give them. It's a worship trap. We don't worship the giver. We worship the gifts we want from him. Think about it for a minute. You, know, you ever have one of those experiences, maybe, I hope it didn't happen to you this year, when it's Christmas time, you have the experience where you go and you're, you know, your people are opening gifts on Christmas. And I was, I was the terrible sinner this way, so I'm just going to make the story in the first person. You know, you're there, and my attitude at Christmas, I can remember being a kid, and my attitude was often, I didn't care. Like, you know, you know your mom, mom's trying to get you, well, who gave you that gift? You don't care who gave you the gift. All I cared about was unwrapping it as fast as I could, leaving the wrapping paper for someone else to clean up, and determining quickly if it's what I wanted or not. And I would very quickly show you in my attitude whether it was a suitable gift. I mean, I was like a big fat jerk. I can remember times, this isn't what I wanted. Huh? And then I can remember, wow, I love Uncle Carl. He's the best. It's amazing Uncle Carl could go from like dud to stud from Christmas to Christmas. <laughs> that wasn't in my notes. God offers us a relationship with himself that will last forever, right? And so often we begin worshiping. The, and, and you think about it. You step back. We get upset when God doesn't give us something that's going to burn with the fire, right? And instead he offers us something that's going to endure for eternity. After 10,000 years, we're still going to be singing about his grace, 10,000 years, 10,000 times 10,000. Brian, I think I got another song I want to sing. It doesn't get any better than that. Second, we see the response of the repentant. Verse 16, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. I, mean, I don't know about you, but I got so excited when I read this verse. Because really, it's been bleak every chapter, hasn't it? It's been this barren tree. And God is speaking, and God is speaking, and God is speaking. And you're like, is anyone going to listen? Is anyone going to believe? 
And all of a sudden, this new group materializes, and we see buds blossom. You know, I said at the beginning of this series that the work of a prophet was not to just bang people down into the dirt. It was to call them to repentance. The prophet spoke God's word to the people in the hopes that they would respond in repentance and faith. And finally, it's happened. They, they, they feared the Lord. They've taken the word of God to heart. Uh, Dallas professor Eugene Merrill writes, quote, Thus, those fearing gave evidence of their renewed commitment by talking to one another. Presumably in the sense of a mutual confession and a corporate repentance. They discussed with one another the meaning of Malachi's message and together agreed that it correctly pinpointed their sinful condition and called for their radical reformation. You see the difference between these two groups? The group up there on the screen heard the voice of God and they continued to cling to their own self-righteousness. They, they're the kind of person that could pick up and read, this, read something that God said and said, yeah, but I don't agree with that. But I don't think that. But I don't like that. But I don't believe that. They, they put themselves above the voice of God. And this group of people over here, these people said, yes, if God said it, it must be true. I, mean, I, made, I made a joke a few weeks ago in the evening service talking about election. I said that it's a misnomer. God said it. I believe it. Therefore, it's true. And that's, that is a false statement. It's got a false premise. This group, the reason they are beginning to flower and bud is because they eliminated the middle sentence. God said it. It's true doesn't really matter whether or not we believe it. Gravity exists whether you believe it or not, friends. It exists whether you believe it or not. God's truth exists whether we believe it or not. So we might as well hearken to it and believe and submit. They've responded in repentance and faith. And, and let's just, we don't have time, but really quick, when, when it talks about the fear of the Lord, it is not talking about them walking around, you know, hiding behind rocks. All right? That's not the fear it conjures. To walk in the fear of the Lord, I think Ecclesiastes 5 puts it really well. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth. Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are in earth. Therefore, let your words be few. To walk in the fear of the Lord is to remember that there is a God and we are not him. He says it, we believe it. We guard our hearts because we realize we are greater than him. The Israelites that, that did not blossom, their words were not few. What were their words? Many. There was no sense of reverence and respect for the work of God. Do you remember the last real Indiana Jones movie? Clearly I mean Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Because it should have just stopped right there. And you know, there's this great scene in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade towards the end. Um, you know, Sean Connery's been shot. He's laying there on the ground. His son, Indy. 
named after the dog, is going to go and he's going to try to get to the Holy Grail, complete these tests that he can save his father. And, and, you know, there are these three traps, ironically, that he's got to get through, right, in order to save his dad. And all he's got is the little clues that his dad gave him. And he's, I think it's the very first trap. And the clue is, only the penitent man shall pass. And it's great. You hear, you hear Sean Connery in that ridiculously awesome Scottish brogue saying it, you know, again and again and again. Only the penitent man. Only the penitent man. I can't do it. Only the penitent man shall pass. And he's walking forward. And at the last minute, he just falls on his knees. And the blade just woo, prevented him. Falling on his knees prevented him from becoming a much shorter man. And ironically, that is what it is to walk in the fear of the Lord. We walk tall because we humble ourselves. We are humble ourselves before God's work. That's the posture of someone who fears the Lord. I hope you pray for humility regularly. I hope you pray that God would humble your heart. Jonathan Edwards once said that the greatest danger to revival was spiritual pride. I hope you humble yourself. To walk in the fear of the Lord, to, to walk through life, I love how it says, esteeming his name, is to walk around this world, this world which is a theater to display God's glory, as Calvin called it. We walk through this life in awe of the work of God. We walk through life in awe of God and his work in creation. The sunsets, the cloud formations, the butterflies. Probably about the only thing I've enjoyed about moving around the country so much is seeing how every area has this unique beauty to it. Whether it is just the, the, the rugged mountain ranges of the west. You guys here in West Michigan have the best cloud formations I've ever seen. It's astounding. And you see, you see the glory of God in creation. You see the glory of God in the luminescent wings of the butterfly. Yesterday, we went to the Meyer Gardens. And I was just standing there walking around the Meyer Gardens thinking, my God made that. My God made that. And that, and that. That bird, that flower, that plant that I really don't want to get too close to because I think it might bite me. He made it all. You walk in awe of God in creation. You walk in awe of the work of God in providence. There's this beautiful thing about walking with Jesus and looking back and all of a sudden saying, oh, I guess I had to go through that hard place. And this is the fruit it produced in my heart now because he didn't have me go through it alone. He shepherded me through. And I went through this so I could minister to them. And there's a beauty when you see the providence of God and you walk in awe knowing that our lives are like this web and he's charting them together to use for his glory, that nothing is a cosmic accident or a chance, that we are not at the mercy of fate, but at a providential loving God. You walk in, to esteem his name, so walk in awe at God at his work of redemption. I mean, step back and think, where would I be if grace did not find me? Where was I? Where has he brought me? We rejoice when we see hard hearts clinging to their rights, melted like butter in a microwave before the work of the Holy Spirit.
It's beautiful. That's what it is to esteem his name. It's a heart of worship. We've seen the accusation. We've seen the response of the repentant. And finally, we see the response of God. Verse 16, the Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who fear the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. I love, all, do you see the intimate language in that text? The Lord, quote, paid attention. He heard them. He did, he did not run off. He, he heard them. He saw this response of faith. And, and he uses this beautiful anthropomorphic word picture. He says, a book of remembrance will be written before me. You know, the Persian kings, they would, they would have these books written, historical annals of, of the acts of great or faithful people. And they'd have them written down so they could always be remembered and treasured and read. We see that in the book of Esther, if you're familiar. You see that idea happening. And so God is using this metaphor to speak to the Israelites and saying, hey, I noticed that. I saw it. I heard and I will not forget that act of faith, that act of belief, that act of trust and faithfulness will be before me forever. I will never forget. They shall be mine in the day when I make up my treasured possession. I hope that you can feel the love of God in that sentence. I don't want you to just hear it. I want you to feel it. I want you to feel God looking at them and saying, they shall be mine against my chest forever, never out of my hand. My son, my daughter, my treasured possession, never out of my sight. My eyes are on them. My ears are attentive to their prayers. If you have come to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, this is how he looks at you. This is what he says about you. You shall be mine forever. The passage points to the work of God that made it possible. I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Once again, we see every chapter in Scripture is pointing to the Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. They are spared as a son. Because Jesus Christ was not. Someone needed to pay the penalty for their sin if justice was indeed going to be done. It was going to be them or it was going to be Jesus. But someone was going to pay. It is going to be us or it is going to be Jesus. But someone is going to pay the penalty for our rebellion against the living God, for our barrenness of faith. 
He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or danger or nakedness or sword? Jesus was not spared. So that if we will come to him in a spirit of repentance and faith, bowing before his throne, we may be spared. He took our place at the cross that we might have the blessing of life with him for eternity. Jesus Christ came to perfectly satisfy God's justice, his love, and his mercy. One day, God is going to separate the righteous from the wicked. One day, he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. Right now, the, the, the people of Israel are, are begging for what they perceive, perceive to be the blurry line to be made clear. And it's the height of ironies that God's saying, well, you're going to get what you want. I'm going to separate the righteous from the wicked. Which side are you going to be on? By nature, we are all unbelieving, cynical Israelites pointing our fingers at God's face. But Jesus has made the way by which we may be righteous, spotless, sinless, not of ourselves, but through the work of Jesus Christ. That he, we would become his tre 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 treasured possession. Let us go to him in repentance and faith and speak to one another about the great things he has done. Let's pray. Living God, we thank you and praise you that you died for us while we were still in our sins. Father God, work a contrition in us. Astound us with wonder once again over your marvelous work at the cross. May our lives bear forth much good fruit for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray.